Welcome to the Columbia Church Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Bauckham, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Enjoy the message. Uh, I'm so excited for this. This is going to be great. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Yeah, those look awesome. They man. do look awesome. Okay. Yeah. Do you? I would never serve it to you if I wouldn't eat it myself. I, you, so. I was going to say, if I'm going to eat this, you're going to eat no, this. No, I will. I will. You got a knife? No. I, you just I, you can cut it with a fork. Are you sure? They're really tender. tender. The banana keeps it really squishy, so it's it's good. I promise. All right. we, we talked about nutrition, so I'm I'm proud of them for adding the green beans and broccoli. You're you're fired, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm going out with a colorful uh, okay. bang yeah, right okay, here. Okay. So that's right. let's. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Let's see, let's see how these are. Oh, my are. gosh. Make sure you get a gummy bear. I know they're your favorite. Yeah, boy. Oh, oh. okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is the driest thing I've ever put. I have, that I have so not one ounce of, of saliva left in my mouth. Ew. It's like chewing peanut butter. This that's, is a. Uh, that's, that's. This is just what I need before preaching. I know. <laughs> that's why I got you some water. Uh, I'm gonna and, need uh, that. I got you a pack of mini gummy bears so you can <laughs> wash that taste out of your mouth. Oh, oh my gosh. Man. Okay. Um, okay. That's great. Well, um, you're, um, Jacob, you're welcome. I'm telling you're, you're welcome. That's a lot of baking powder, I think. Y'all, y'all can come eat these pancakes in Stevenson Hall if you want. If you don't um, finish them on the way out of here. Uh, we can pass them around like a, <laughs> yeah. the Lord's Supper. Or All something. right, Jacob. Thank you, brother. <laughs> that seriously is the driest thing I have ever had in my, in my entire life. Okay, when you ask kids, uh, you know, to make something for you, you never know quite what you're going to get. But when it comes to God's goodness and God's grace. You know precisely what you're going to receive. It's what He provides. It's what He plans for us, what He intends for us. It's just, it's amazing to be able to expect and know that God will deliver for us. So that's really what we've been looking at. I think some of you have been surprised by how deeply into Scripture we're able to go through the lens of food. At the beginning, a few people said, I don't know how you're going to get seven sermons out of this. And now we walked through the festivals last week and the food laws the week before and all the things that are in Scripture. Many of you are amazed by how many facets of life and how many facets of Scripture we touch by looking at this. And that is because Food is mentioned 1,207 times in the Bible. It's from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. It's almost impossible to find a book that does not have a significant food reference. Oh, excuse me for a minute. (laughs) And that's what really grabbed me as I was reading Scripture uh, reading the Bible through is just how many references to food they were, there were and how many facets of our discipleship they really touch. Now, I, of course, grabbed on to Psalm 34, 8, which tells us that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We're blessed if we take refuge in Him. Now, I, I understand the see that the Lord is good peace, and that's probably uh, what I would have written, you know, but I, I'm not positive that I would have thought to say 
Taste that the Lord is good. And by good, we mean the Hebrew word tov, which I've taught you many times is far deeper than our word good. That word means good. It means beautiful. It means bountiful. It means sweet. It means so much that it's impossible to capture in one English word or even ten. So when I looked at Genesis, reading at the very beginning of Scripture, I had this intriguing observation, and it had never grabbed me before, and I've been sharing it throughout, and that is that God created us with a need to eat. That is, we would have to eat to live. We'd have to eat to survive. It struck me for the first time that God did not have to do it that way. I mean, obviously, God can do whatever God wants to do, but God could have made us without the need to receive and burn fuel. It would have been possible for us to be created that way. Life could have looked entirely different. It also struck me that God met the need that He created before He even created the need. So the plants and the animals are there before the humans, we humans, are created and we're given the opportunity to dine on those delicacies that are in nature, that this was part of God's plan from the very beginning, which is probably why when he finishes the whole thing, he says that it is very tov. It is extremely good. This whole puzzle fits together in a way that satisfies God's plan. It struck me that the plan was all about What I came to call, and this is my language, my thinking, a virtuous cycle of dependence. I think most of us think of virtuous cycles of independence, and we think of of dangerous cycles of dependence. But when it comes to God, to depend on Him is the best our lives can possibly be. Once we fully depend on God, we need not depend on anything else. Now, you may say, well, wait a second. I depend on food. I depend on water. I depend on relationship. I depend on lots of things. But once we see that God is the genesis of all of those things, the author of all of them, that He stands behind them, that He orchestrates the universe for His glory and for our benefit, once we understand that, then everything we receive becomes a gift from His hand. So whatever we receive is a sign of His providence and therefore also a reminder of our dependence on this great and good God. Now, last week we covered the festivals. It, it probably should have been done in more than one sermon because a lot of you took interest in that sermon. I was amazed at how fascinated you were, how much reading you did following up. That was fantastic. It's one of the great things about the access to material that we have. You read some of the same or asked me for references to some of the same Jewish material that I was reading about these festivals. Many of you read the Scriptures. A lot of you did some online research. That's all awesome. That you followed up is incredible. And your sermon-based small groups apparently had amazing conversations about the meaning of these festivals. If you missed that sermon on those seven festivals, you will want to go back and watch that sermon because it really is. This is sort of a two-part deal. I'm following up on that. And, And what I taught you was this amazing truth. And that is that all the Old Testament festivals, I'd never realized it before until preaching and teaching on food. Every last one of them is a harvest festival. Seven harvest festivals. Somebody asked me, is there really no festival between the end of the harvest in the fall and the first barley harvest in the spring? That's correct. There is no Jewish festival in the fallow season of the year. The other remarkable, amazing thing that I came to understand was that all of God's great and mighty acts of deliverance. Now, obviously, God delivers all the time. 
So I don't mean every little thing God does, but all of his great and mighty acts of deliverance happened in concert with one of these seasons and therefore in concert with the harvest. So we can think at the beginning of the harvest year of the Passover festival. We know what Passover means, but there was a harvest festival there before there was a Passover, before there was a Pesach. So God, at the very beginning of the first harvest of the year, harvests his people out of Egypt and begins their movement towards the promised land. And then we move through the year and we get to that Pentecost season, which existed before we came to understand Pentecost as a a moment of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the birthday of the church, if you will. But Pentecost was a great festival of the Jewish people. It It was the pinnacle of the harvest. It was the fruit harvest. It was the sweet harvest that happened at the very center. And then we get to the the end of the cycle. And what we discover again is that much of our history is attached to this Jewish movement, this Jewish calendar of the year. I loved talking to one of our awesome members last Sunday evening, and and, uh, her husband said that when I threw those seven festivals up on the board, that she turned to him and said, that's the story of Scripture. That's exactly right. It's amazing to see that this is the case. So for the Hebrew people, their movement through the calendar year and their movement through the harvest was always a re-entry into Scripture. It was a movement into God's Word and what God was doing among His people. Now, what shocked me, however, was to discover then that all of the Old Testament festivals were giving festivals. Now, let me tell you how this happened. Because I went searching for material that I could use to tell you to go and have a harvest party. I really wanted to. I mean, that's the kind of sermon I love to preach, you know. So I'll tell you, hey, go out and take a hayride or something like that. You know, go have a bonfire, roast some marshmallows, do some. I don't know what's fall for you, but, you know, drink another pumpkin latte, party big, you know, do something. That's what I went looking for. The problem is I couldn't find it. So here I am pouring through these books of Scripture that tend to stump you when you're trying to read the Bible through in a year. Books like Deuteronomy and Leviticus and and some of the more arcane parts of Exodus. And as I'm pouring through this material, I am looking for that place where the Harvest Festival is a festival. What is a festival? Festival means feast day. So where is the feast day in here? And I couldn't find it. Little small references, little tiny snippets of Scripture that talk about celebrating, taking joy in the harvest, but all the rest of them very intentional statements of how we are to give back at each of these festivals to God, about how each of these festivals is not actually about God giving more because God's always provided bountifully, but our response to God's giving with our own thanksgiving. So let me give you a sampling. I don't want to bore you by reading every single one of these festival passages. So I chose a few that are representative, but you need to trust me when I tell you there is not one exception to this rule. All seven festivals have very specific instructions, and all seven sets of specific instructions are about giving and not receiving. So Exodus chapter 23 verses 17 through the first part of 19. Three times a year, during these harvest festivals, these harvest seasons, 
All the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Now, in some ways, that seems redundant. I was at a winery or a vineyard this past spring, and one of the things that the vineyard owner told me is that the first grapes are the best grapes. The first harvest is the best harvest. The finest wines are made of the first press. Some of the stuff like two-buck chuck is from second or third presses, whatever the case may be, that the best fruit you'll get in a harvest season is the first fruit. It's the sweetest. It's the finest. So it should have been enough, it seems to me, for God to say, give the first that comes up, the first of the harvest. But it wasn't enough. God says, not only give the first fruits, but give the best, the choicest, the finest of those first fruits. Then in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say this to them, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you that land of milk and honey, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave that sheaf before the Lord so that it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. Look at the specificity. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb a year old without defect. That's the finest lamb you have. Together with its grain offering of two tenths, an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a quarter of hen of wine. By the way, don't, don't email me and ask me what a hen is because I do not have a clue. It's some specific portion. And if you know the answer, email me the answer. You must not eat any bread or roasted or new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for all the generations to come. Wherever they live, wherever they are, you'll always do this thing I've commanded you to do. Now, note again, you're not to eat any of the produce of the harvest until you have given back to God from the harvest. Finally, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 through 10, another great sampling of these specific instructions about these giving harvest festivals. Count off seven weeks from the time you began to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God by giving a freewill offering in proportion to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. So what you have to do is to measure the harvest and then offer a suitable portion of the harvest. What we call maybe in our parlance a tithe. That is, if God is especially generous, then you are to match that generosity. Whatever God gives to you, you're to give back a significant portion to Him. Now, a couple of points jumped out to me. I probably could find ten, but I chose three. Three things that I see that are true about these festivals and these instructions that might help me to understand them. And let me offer this thought, that while these specific instructions may have gone by the wayside, as I'll discuss in a few moments, Nonetheless, the spirit of the law remains. 
So these particular points, I think I could understand as teachings for my own whole life discipleship of Jesus. Number one, give back before taking in. Give back before you consume. Let me tell you that one of the lost arts in our culture today is what we call delayed gratification. It is the capacity and the ability to hope for something that you cannot have right now, to long and work for something that is not accessible to you at this very moment, to believe that that thing is possible out in the future, but to be able to wait patiently for it and to shape your life in such a way as to reach that goal or to accomplish that thing. And the reason we've lost this art of delayed gratification is because there is so much instant gratification in our culture. Among the damages that I think social media has done for us is that it's all right there right now. I get it right now. I react to it right now. I respond to it. Everything's immediate. Everything becomes impulsive. How do we teach our children, the generations that are coming behind, the art of delayed gratification, because trust me when I tell you, a lot of their success in life will be based on their capacity to delay gratification. There were lots of ways that my parents did this, but one of them I remember almost every Sunday that I'm alive, and, and that is in, in our home, Sunday dinner was different than the other dinners of the week. Now, you need to understand, like in my home, my mother was big about a proper table. We didn't like candles like Debbie does, but we all sat down, we all gave thanks, and we all ate. And we ate politely, or we tried to. When you got two brothers, stuff. You know, it's who can get it first. But there on Sunday was an opportunity for us to express things a little differently. And the way that it works is when you got home from Sunday worship, you did not take off your Sunday best. Now, when I came along, your Sunday best was your suit, your tie, your little sport jacket, your patent leather shoes, whatever it is you had, whatever you wore, that was what we dressed up back then to go to church. Scott, I see you right there. I see that expression on your face. Yes, and we still should, in my personal opinion. It wasn't comfortable, but it was part of the way we saw offering ourselves to God in a special way. And so when we'd come home, you could not get out of that monkey suit until you had sat down and dined with your family. So you stayed in your suit and your tie. You went into the kitchen and you helped carry the items to the table to prepare the table, not in the regular breakfast room where we ate every single other meal, but in the formal dining room. We gather around the formal dining room table, and there the night before or the morning of, but usually the night before, my brothers and I had been asked to set the table. We set it with the finest china that we had in the house, with the silverware, with uh, not paper napkins, but cloth napkins. The table was beautifully adorned, beautifully set, and the food was special too. It was good food, always good food in my house, but this was special. And the food would come to the table, and then we would all sit and when you sat, you sat with your rear end in the back of the chair and your back touching the back of the chair and your hands carefully folded in your lap. I don't know that we did this well all the time, but this is what was asked of us. No elbows on the table, no hands on the table for that matter, and you waited patiently. And the reason you waited patiently 
is because your mother, in this case my mother, who was preparing a lot of the meal, was the host of that particular table. And until she lifted her fork, you were not allowed to touch your fork. So finally, after waiting a period of time, she would come in and she would sit at one head of the table, my father at the other. I can vividly remember this picture in my mind. It's like it was yesterday. And she would say a few words, I don't know, something about the worship service that day or what had happened. Here you are waiting. You're waiting to eat your meal in a perfect square. You're waiting to use your silverware from the outside in. You're waiting to fold your napkin in your lap. You're waiting to taste that first morsel of food. Now, Sunday was Sunday in my home, so we never had time for some big breakfast. Usually we're hungry. And the preacher preached about food that day. We were hungry. And there we waited until we'd said the blessing, which was longer than usual, and then my mother finally would reach out slowly and take her fork. And then we'd take our forks and we'd start. That's what we did. Now, I can't tell you that I particularly liked these occasions. I don't, I remember being uncomfortable. I remember being hungry. I actually remember wanting to leave and do other things with my day. But my mother said to us over and over again, someday you will thank me for doing this every Sunday afternoon. My mom will watch this later. Thanks, mom. I do thank my mom. I thank her every time I am invited to some elite function. I'm invited to some grand dining table. I'm at the White House or somewhere like that. I'm invited to dine with someone of great importance. And all around me are people who've had the benefit of, of tremendous etiquette experience in their lives. And it's not hard to pick out the person in the room whose mother did not teach them to eat in this way. You know how to handle yourself in that situation, and it turns out to be pretty important. But I also thank my mother because I now recognize that this was one of the many little ways in which I was taught, and believe me, it was hard to teach me this, delayed gratification, expecting, hoping, waiting until the appropriate time of provision. I could give bigger examples of this. There are still things that I wait and hope for right now. Delayed gratification is of utmost importance. But in this case, the reason it's so important is that if you take care of yourself before you acknowledge what God has offered and given, before you acknowledge that God's behind it all, that the harvest is His provision for you, then you have already consumed before you have entered this virtuous cycle of dependence. Among other things, I think saying grace before a meal or saying a prayer before a meal it doesn't so much tell God something we don't know. I was with some, someone sometime in a restaurant, and I, I said to this is a pastor too, and I said, hey, you, you want me to pray? Or you? And he said, God knows we're thankful. And I said, well, but I may not know it. Giving thanks reminds me of who I am relative to God, my dependence on Him, His providence. And so one of the key things here is always giving back to God before taking in. Now, now friends, in our modern parlance, this is tithing. I don't know how you do it or if you do it. In my home, 
That, we give more than 10% by a long shot, but that 10% comes out before we spend a penny. It is not available to us. It is not accessible to us. It cannot be used for something else. It comes out right off the top. It's the first and it's the best. And that's what God asks of me. Second, give back in specific and intentional ways. Give back in specific and intentional ways. God expected his people to give back in specific, intentional ways. What you note when you read about these festivals is the specificity of the way they are to be celebrated. You don't just give a gift. You give it in a particular way or a specific way. And I think I understand this a little bit. So for one thing, whole life discipleship involves a lot of intentionality, a lot of planned specificity. But I also understand it just in the way my life works right now. So do you have anyone in your life who is a particularly good gift giver? Now, Kate, I know the answer to that question is yes. Brett Flanders is a magnificent gift giver. He's a really good, he's really good at this. He's so good at it that you, you can't figure out how to match it. I mean, so what he does, Brett and I for years have had this tradition of of exchanging Christmas Eve gifts. We come to the Christmas Eve services. I sneak into his office. I mean, he knows I'm going to do it. He sneaks into my office. We leave him on a chair in there. And then the last thing you do before you go home on Christmas Eve, which is pretty late, the last thing you do is to check and see what that is. And every single time that Brett has, my gifts are okay. And I've done a pretty good job sometimes. I've done all right. But Brett's gifts are so carefully thought out and constructed. You know he's been planning it for months. He's been thinking about how it was going to work. And it relates to something that you've experienced together usually in the past year. It always relates to something. So the gift is, whether it's valuable or not in terms of money is not the point. It usually is nice, but you look at it and it reminds you of the person who gave you the gift. Look how specific God is in his gift giving to us. When God gives to us, do we think about how amazing a banana really is? How incredible something created with such appeal. How remarkable the things that God makes. And he is so specific and intentional about giving us not only things that will keep us going. This isn't just some sort of a protein shake. God gives us food that is tasty, enjoyable, that allows us to gather together. God's so specific in his gift giving. I thought about this just this week because I received an email I hadn't received before. I was in a text, actually, from a friend of mine. It was only to about 13 of us. And uh, this uh, group text that was sent out, I'd never been included in before. And, and the text informed me that I had been included in an elite group. This is a really good friend of mine. And this friend said, if you're in this group, you're someone who means a lot to us and has really invested in our lives. This is somebody outside Columbia. It's a pastoral friend, actually. And he said, I have a tradition that I do every year. And he told me about the tradition before. And the tradition is right before Thanksgiving, I beg pies. And I choose three different recipes every year. And and what I'm offering you the opportunity to do is to choose one of these three. And then here are three dates. Choose one of those three dates. And I will personally deliver this to your doorstep. If you're curious, by the way, about what we chose it's this, uh, it's this uh, salted caramely kind of a, 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 a pear chocolate. It sounds incredible. I can't wait. 
that's coming to my house right before Thanksgiving. If you're there, maybe I'll share it with you. Probably not. So anyway, this is, uh, this is incredible. And what it, what it does is it makes you feel incredibly important to this person, quite loved, because of the intentionality and the specificity of it. It's not just, hey, look, I bought you something, thought about you. That's nice. It's you're really important in my life, and I'm going to be very intentional and specific about the way that I care for you. Now, we can apply this in all parts of our lives. We can apply it in our marriages, can't we, or in our friendships or in being part of a church to help people in very specific and intentional ways, not just to say to someone, hey, if I can help you in any way, let me know. But to say, I will do this. One of the things I love about the way we handle meals here for people who've had something tough happen in their life, it didn't used to be like this, but watching the way it works now in the church, the way people do meal trains, the way they rally around, it's not, it's saying, look, I know this is tough for you and I'm going to show up. I'm just telling you this is what I'm going to do. But what about for God? How specific and intentional are we? about the way we give back to Him. Since those laws no longer apply in our lives and those rules are no longer there, how do we figure out what it means to be specific and intentional in giving back? Number three, give back the first and the best of each harvest. The leftovers will not do. God is not asking for your overflow. He's not asking for the excess or the extra. He's asking for all of you and no half measure will do. Either it's all of you or none of you. He wants your whole heart, your whole mind, and your whole soul. And because He wants all of it, whatever you're going to give back to Him needs to represent the allness. You're all new, and you're all in. And the allness needs to be reflected in the way you give because this is the way God asked His people to give to Him the first and the best. Now, thinking about delayed gratification, if you have little kids, I miss having little kids at Christmas. Uh, There are sometimes I don't miss having little kids, let me be clear, but I miss it at Christmas. The excitement and the energy and the enthusiasm of it all, the wonder of it all, it's just, it was such an amazing thing. And you know, it's, it's, you work so hard and you get so tired and then Christmas, Christmas morning comes, but man, the rush when you see those kids dive in. So let's say that you were to do this. You were to say to them, all right, guys, go get it. And you know, what are they going to open first? It's the thing that you left out that's the big thing, you know, that year. The big, in our house, there was one big thing, always just one. So one big thing, and that's going to be the thing that's gotten into first, and then you get into everything else, and finally the socks and the underwear and all that stuff. But as you go through, and then you say to the kids, okay, now, I want you to give some of this back to God. In this case, God's, God's Santa. I want you to give some of it back, and they say, well, I can live without these socks here. And you say, no. It has to be the first thing you opened and the best thing you received. Can you imagine? I wouldn't recommend this, by the way. (laughs) But in this case, what God's saying is the first and the best has to come back to me. This is different than everything else in your life, though I think it shapes everything else in your life. The first and the best has to come back to me. I mean, have you ever loved somebody so much that you wanted to give them the first and the best? You know, not many people fit that category, but if it comes to my wife and my daughters, especially my wife, 
When I give her something, I want it to be the first and the best that I have because she's so important to me. Well, God's saying, I am everything to you. You are fully dependent on me. I am your provider, not just now, but for eternity. I am your caretaker. I am the lover of your soul. Give me your first and your best. Now, that's what God asked for. So harvest festivals were all about, with great intentionality and forethought, giving back the first and the best to God. Now, what do we do with this stuff in the Old Testament? I asked this a few weeks ago when we were dealing with the food laws. And you know what I said at the time, I'm going to say again, just in case you weren't here, but to repeat it. <clears throat> and that is, I, I do understand that I'm no longer subject to the laws of the Old Testament. I'm grateful for that. I know that when Jesus came and ushered in this eternal harvest season, that what he ushered in was a time that would be dominated by the law of what we call the law of love. And that no longer am I constrained, but actually I'm propelled, I'm pushed forward to do all the things that show others how much I, I love God. But, you know, I, I think what we can say with absolute certainty is that God didn't change His mind because He doesn't change His mind. So what we can say with certainty is that though the letter of the law may long, no longer apply to you, that is, you don't need to wave the first sheaf at some specific festival, or you don't need to you don't need to slaughter a one-year-old lamb anymore because that season's past. I mean, what you can say is that the spirit of the law remains. That was true with the food laws, and it's true with this. So the spirit of the law carries into the New Testament. And what we see is that when Christ comes and brings the law of love, and we're dominated by love for Jesus Christ, that we fulfill these same spiritual quantities in different ways but they still remain. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to what? Fulfill it. And we're fulfilling it with him now. In, the, in this messianic generation, we are fulfilling the spirit of the law. So this is the way that the apostle Paul deals with this. As you read this, Remember that most people reading this would have been familiar with the context in ways in this series that we're becoming more familiar with them as well. The festivals, the harvests, the rhythm of the year, the rhythm of life. So Paul writes this, remember this. See, remember this. You already know this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have. Would you read those next four words for me? Say it one more time. Decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, can we focus on that for this decided in your heart thing? I never noticed this before, and I've preached, I don't know how many times I've preached this passage. Right. I don't know how many times I've read it, but it never struck me as strange that Paul would say that we should decide something in our hearts. It's a strange way of talking about decision-making. Don't you agree with me? Now, look, just think about this for a moment. If you came to me and you said, Jim, I want you to decide something, and then you added a, a qualifier or a descriptor to that, and you said, I want you to decide this in your no, you wouldn't say heart. You would not. You would say, I want you to decide it in your head. I want you to think about it. Ponder it. I want you to decide it in your skull. I want you to decide it in your mind. 
That's what you would say. Never mind that the philosophical mind does involve the heart. But anyway, you would be thinking head. And, and you know when you're thinking about something, you're trying to make a decision, are you like me and you can feel it moving around in there? You can feel it moving around in there. You can feel the neurons firing. So why didn't Paul say, make up your mind about what to give back to God? Each of you should give as you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because you're not under the compulsion of the law anymore. You're under the law of love. For God loves a loving giver or a cheerful giver. What does it mean to decide in your heart? I think I understand this. I think I get this. You know, when I was younger, and not even that much younger than I am now, I used to feel, because I am pretty much a feeler, I'm a big heart guy, I used to feel that I was kind of a victim of my own emotions. They happened somewhere beyond my control, and they spun around inside of me, and the only thing I could can do was to decide how to respond or react to them. You might be interested to know that modern neurological science has totally disproven that, that we actually can decide what we will feel. We actually can decide what we'll be passionate about. This is one of the things Debbie and I always teach when we take couples like we did a few weeks ago on marriage enrichment retreats, is that love is a decision, and your emotions will follow that decision. I didn't always understand that. <clears throat> Frankly, I learned it the hard way. <clears throat> but I've learned, <clears throat> pardon, that pancake, I'm telling you. I have learned that it is actually possible for me to shape my heart and guard my heart over, over time. I actually saw a great example of this week, and since my daughter Kelly's here, I'll, I'll tell her I was really proud of something that she did. She never, she's the one daughter I have that never, I have two daughters, don't talk about the other one ever. In Kelly's case, she never minds as long as it's a compliment, so this is a compliment. And, um, you know, Kelly's a teacher, and this has been a tough year for teachers. I hope, I hope parents understand. I really do. I, I don't think they do. I, I'm telling you, we're about to run off half of our public school teachers. I do not know what's going to happen to the next generation. But post-COVID, kids came back with no focus. They came back with not much impulse control, not a lot of delayed gratification. You know, parents had to do what they had to do just to make it through the day, for the most part, I think. And, and most of them learned how hard a teacher's job is, because if you're, you're with your kid all day long, you learn how hard a teacher's job really is. The kids came back that way, and the parents came back nervous, stressed out, you know, post-traumatic stress kind of stuff. And so what do they do? They unload it on everyone else. And the teacher's an easy target. Pastors can be too, by the way. But teachers are easy targets. And so it's been a tough, 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 tough year to be a school teacher. Just talk to one of them. I don't know a single one who has not told me I've thought about quitting this year. And Kelly told me that too. You know, she said, Dad, why would I subject myself to this? Why would I, why would I keep, nobody appreci- why would you keep doing this? So, you know, I'll say this again. When you are a father of adult children, you offer, you're an advisor when asked for advice. And once in a while, you float out a little tidbit of advice to see how it'll be received before you go further in. And in this case, I would say, well, Kelly, you might want to think, Dad, Okay, I got it. Stay off my lawn. This isn't your business. 
so talking to her just recently, and she, she says to me, you know, actually, I've decided to stick with it, and actually, it's great, and I love what I do. It's really important, and it's valuable, and I, I love the kids, and it's really awesome. Now, this is a 180-degree turn from a discussion not long ago, or discussions not long ago. So I said, well, honey, what's changed? Are the kids better? She goes, meh, a little. Are the parents better? Ah, uh, No. Are the administrators better? Yeah, a little bit. What's changed? She says, you hear your kids say something like this, you're proud. She says, me, I've changed. I started to realize that I was getting up every morning and expecting the day, I'm going to use her language here, to suck, and it did. And I started to wonder if I was making my decision about where my emotions would go through the day before I even felt them. And I started deciding today will be a great day. I will make a difference today. Today will be a day when the kids learn something. Today will be a day when somebody appreciates me. Today will be a day when I do good. And it changed my day. It changed my job. I didn't preach that. She did. Did I get it right? It's power. Understanding that you shape your heart is power. Understanding that you are the one who chooses to love is power. Understanding that you are the one who chooses not to hate and not to despise and not to have racial animosity and not to have all sorts of issues that people are harboring right now. People are choosing a posture of hate. Christians always choose the law of love. Amen? Followers of Jesus choose to love like Jesus. And it shapes the way we feel, not just the way we think. Paul says, decide in your heart. Make a decision. Shape your passion. Decide you will be a cheerful giver and you will be one. Then Paul continues. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need. Now catch this again. Able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, they freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now, check the next sentence because you're going to see, I think, you're going to see Paul's version of the virtuous cycle of dependence. That's what this is. Now, he who supplies... Now he who supplies, now he who supplies seed to the sower, I kind of get that one, but look, and bread for food. He who provides your food, see that's the example of God's providence, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest for righteousness, your eternal harvest. You will be enriched in every single way so that you can be generous on every single occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Do you see Paul's version of the virtuous cycle of dependence there? God asks for it. God tells you he expects it. God shows you that your response to the harvest should always be your first and your best. And then what does he do? He gives you what he wants you to give back. He meets the need in order for you to be generous. Being generous is a great opportunity. 
What an amazing thing that we live where we live and live like we live and have so much more opportunity to be generous than do so many others. Why is it then that the more we have, the less generous we seem to be? God says, look, I'm going to ask you to give me a lot, but not worry. I'm going to give you what I want you to give back to me. I'm going to take care of you in order that you can show your dependence on me because at the end of the day, it's all about the cycle of dependence. It's all about the love relationship with God. Everything in life is designed to nurture and build that for eternity. I could go on about that, but I'm running out of time, so I won't. Through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving. Now, that's an intriguing sentence, too, and it follows the whole thing of deciding in your heart because we think of thanksgiving as the cause and generosity as the response. But what Paul is saying is that when we are generous, we become grateful. When we are generous, we become thankful. When we give, we become more grateful people. Now, at the beginning of that, Paul says something that I think I've misread. And I also apologize to you because I think I may have mispreached this at some point. I think. I'm still working with this, but I'm going to share with you what's going on in my head. After studying all this stuff and the virtuous cycle of dependence, I read 2 Corinthians 9, which I've preached many times again, and in 9-6 I read, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Let me, let me check and see if you're like me. In the past, I've tended to read that and go, ooh, if I don't give to God, He ain't going to take care of me. Have you ever read that? You ever seen that? People preach it this way. I, I've seen it on TV. If you'll send up a blessing, then God will give you something. I, I don't see any evidence in Scripture that God, I don't see any evidence in Scripture that that's how God functions. In fact, the Scripture is clear that God reigns on the fields of the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous alike. There are plenty of unrighteous, greedy people who have gotten more than anybody could possibly ever use in 50 lifetimes. So clearly God doesn't withhold something and go, you know what, if you don't give to me, I'll show you. I don't think God does that very often. If He does, you show me where. But I've read it that way. And now I think that what Paul is saying within this virtuous cycle of dependence, that what Paul is saying is that you miss out on the eternal harvest of joy, the eternal harvest of peace, the internal harvest of good, of tov, that is accessible and available to those who are really fully dependent on God. And whoever sows sparingly is just going to be miserable because we've all learned that we're no happier with more stuff. But boy, am I happy when I give. Not always up front. I got to tell you the truth, sometimes it's hard for me, but after the fact, I just feel like a different person. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly the righteousness that God offers, but whoever sows generously will reap generously the eternal harvest of righteousness. Christ has ushered in a season of eternal harvest. And so I invite you under the law of love to decide a few things in your heart. Can you decide these things with me in our hearts? God still expects us to give back before we take in. 
God still expects us to give back before we take in. God still expects us to give back in specific and intentional ways. God still expects us to give back in specific and intentional ways. And God still expects us to give the first and the best of every harvest. If the harvest is a paycheck, then the first and the best. If the harvest is my marriage, then the first and the best. If the harvest is my family, then the first and the best. If the harvest is my church, then the first and the best. If the harvest is a gift somebody else gives me out of the blue, then the first and the blessed. If the harvest is joy, then the first and the best. If the harvest is a vacation, then the first and the best. Whatever God bestows on me, whatever wonderful thing that God gives to me, however God provides in my dependence on Him, I can always give back the first and the best. Because at the end of the day, my friends, our greatest and really only ultimate need is to love and be loved by our Creator. Everything else in life fits within that virtuous cycle of dependence. Everything else is designed to draw us into this eternal love relationship with Creator God, Father God. Every single piece of it is designed to give us what we most need. Our greatest need is to be loved and be, love and be loved by God, and God provides that love in abundance. Food, fellowship, family, faith, these are simply signs of God's love. Every one of them points back to His love. His providence is merely a reminder to us every day we live and breathe and eat and drink that God is good. God is good. God is good. Pray with me, would you, Father? Thank you for your goodness, for your love poured out into our lives, into our church, into our world. And Father, it's a strange thing to say, but thank you for making us dependent on things that only you can provide. Thank you for creating the world in such a way that we are drawn into this love relationship with you, that it does not elude us, it does not evade us, that what we gain in this world changes things for eternity, not only for us, but for your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, that we will be dependent on you forever and that you will provide for us forever. And Lord, if anybody is, is hearing my voice today and recognizing for the very first time that they are being drawn into this relationship with you, I pray that if they ask for the forgiveness of their sins and receive Christ into their hearts, that you would change them from the inside out, that along with us they would be all new, all in, and all out. In Jesus' name, amen. So together we are all new, all in, and all out. You go ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. Have a blessed week. I'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. area, we would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to ColumbiaBaptist.org. That's ColumbiaBaptist.org.